morning, you guys. It's good to have you here. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If this is your first time with us, this is one of our favorite days of the year. Uh, so much joy in it uh, for the life of a Christian. And so uh, we're going to rejoice in looking at some of the uh, proof of the resurrection of Jesus historically, uh, as well as um, to take a look in Acts chapter 2 in the early church, one of the first sermons that was ever preached and how the resurrection of Jesus was, uh, was a pillar of that uh, discourse. So uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, I want to start by uh, looking at uh, some prophecies very quickly. And um, if you're kind of new to spiritual things or new to faith, uh, prophecy is something that is uh, an inspired utterance by somebody. Um, in the Old Testament, it was somebody speaking directly from God. Uh, we see that uh, the Bible that you hold in your hand was uh, written by prophets, holy men of God, who were moved as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, they were carried along, and uh, as God was, would breathe out his revelation to man. Um, but also prophecy in the Bible uh, speaks of a prediction, a prediction of something that was to come. And something that's so incredible about Easter Sunday is we're able to look at one of the most incredible, fulfilled prophecies of all time. The prophecy of the resurrection of the Messiah, uh, the resurrection of the Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. Peter Stoner was a mathematician from Westmont College. He wrote a book called Science Speaks. In that book, he calculated the odds of any man in history fulfilling the 330 prophecies that Jesus directly fulfilled of this Messiah during his first coming. The odds of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled, like virgin birth, or being born in Bethlehem, or living in Egypt, would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. You do the math. Get your smartphone out and do that. Peter Stoner illustrated this by saying you could stack silver dollars two feet thick across the state of Texas then take a blindfolded man and have him pick out that silver dollar that had been marked with an X out of every one of those statewide dollars. For a man to fulfill 48 of these messianic prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. It's difficult to paint a picture of those Odds, but since we have microscopes, we can do that. If you were to take electrons one inch long and count them at 250 electrons nonstop per minute, it would take you 19 million years to count them. Okay? Um, if you were to take one cubic inch of electrons, it would take you 19 million cubed years to count them. That's 19 million times 19 million times 19 million. That's roughly the number of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And that's just if one dude fulfilled 48 of these messianic prophecies. Pick any electron out of all of those and have somebody try to pick that pre-selected electron the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And guess what? Jesus has fulfilled 330 of these Old Testament predictions. A. Cressy Morrison was from the New York Academy of Science. He wrote, suppose you could take 10 pennies and mark all of them 1 through 10 and put them in your pocket. What would be the odds that someone could pick number one out of those pennies? One out of ten, right? How about number two? One out of a hundred. 
for him to take all 10 pennies out consecutively would be one out of 10 billion. What if he did it? You would have to say that the game would have been rigged, right? You would be cheated. <laughs> you know, you, you, there's some trick in this magician's handy book. And you know what? There was a trick in Jesus's handiwork. The trick was he was the Messiah. He is God. He's the one that inspired, that moved those prophecies to be written. One man, it might have even been Peter Stoner, if I'm writing correctly, offered $10,000 if anyone could find just one guy who fulfilled half of the prophecies that Jesus did. He still got that $10,000 in his bank account. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, oh, excuse me, I'm not there yet. I have the same color notes there. Today on this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the fulfillment of one of the greatest prophecies of Jesus, one that the seers of old foretold that would take place three days after his death, one that Jesus himself promised he would accomplish. It was a prophecy that Jesus said was the greatest sign of his validity to be who he said he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the anointed Messiah, the Savior of the world, the hope of Israel. He called this sign the sign of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40, he said to the Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except for the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 23, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the, sons, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will raise up. And the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful. Jesus knew that this event was going to happen. And some 17 times in the gospel, he tries to tell the disciples, it's going to happen. And yet for some reason, the disciples never got it. They couldn't understand. They couldn't believe that, that the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, would die. They completely missed out on the good news of that part, that he would rise from the dead. The resurrection is the crowning proof of Christianity. Guys, it is what we as Christians stake all our chips on. We take the resurrection to the bank. Johnny said during worship that, uh, that it's the best proved fact in all of history. If somebody would just be a fair inquirer and do research, they would find this to be true. Dr. William Lane Craig wrote, The resurrection is the divine vindication from that which Jesus was executed, that is, his claim to be God. The Jews killed Jesus because Jesus claimed to be God. But Jesus says, if I rise from the dead after you killed me, then you know it's true. He's alive. He's been vindicated. There are five things in my studying that gird up the incredible doctrine of the resurrection. First of all, it's been the foundation of Christianity for over 2,000 years. We are held up by this truth. It's orthodox belief. Secondly, the resurrection fulfilled over 11 specific prophecies from the Old Testament, specifically about the resurrection of Jesus, including, or add another, eight prophecies from the lips of Jesus himself. A third undergirding fact about the resurrection is that you can hop on a plane and in you know, one day you'll be in Jerusalem and you can go north of the old city and you will find Golgotha, just about a football's throw from this tomb where Jesus was crucified. And then within that vicinity, just as the Bible says, there is a tomb, there is a garden with a 10,000 gallon water cistern 
It was a rich man's tomb in a garden. And there it is empty. The empty tomb is one of the central pillars of the resurrection, which is a foundation of the Christian faith. The fourth is that there were a multitude of eyewitnesses who could account of Jesus being risen from the dead. Fifth, there's the witness of the apostles. Even through the midst of persecution, the loss of all they had, and even death, they stayed true to what they knew they had seen with their eyes in the presence of many other witnesses. Now it is completely impossible that the apostles could have preached and written as they did unless they were absolutely certain and sincere and under deep conviction that they had actually seen Jesus, touched Jesus, risen from the dead, eaten food with Jesus, hung out with Jesus. Here's where I was getting a bit earlier when I jumped the gun. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, and we're going to share his testimony in a little bit. He wrote, This doctrine they asserted with one voice everywhere, not only under the greatest discouragement, but in the face of the most appalling terrors that can be presented to the mind of man. Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The laws of rulers and great men in the world were against Christians. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceable manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith, they zealously did propagate, and all these miseries they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing, as one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigor and resolution. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unblenching courage. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truths which they asserted. And these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency. You see, at the end of the gospel accounts, the disciples were scared cowards who had abandoned Jesus, their friend. Even after he said, you're going to abandon me. And they said, no, we're not. We promise. What they do? They abandon him. He was alone at the cross. And yet something happened to change these craven runaways into bold proclaimers of the gospel. Even if it cost them the loss of their possessions, the brutal murders of their families, the separation of themselves from their families, or even some of the worst deaths imaginable. Sosthenes was a Roman historian. He wrote, Punishment and persecution was inflicted on the Christians as a class of men given to a new and mischievous miracle. What was this new and mischievous miracle? That someone rose up from the dead. That's the big time, you guys. That's stuff that just didn't happen. And they were propagating this miracle. <clears throat> Gert L. Demon, <laughs> D-E-M-A-N-N, unfortunate last name, is the leading German New Testament critic. In other words, he doesn't believe the New Testament. Yet even he must say, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. The sixth undergirding pillar of the resurrection that I found in my studies are the testimonies of secular authorities and scholars such as Damon, if I could say his name more properly, I'm sure. You look at the biblical 
evidence, you look at the circumstantial evidence, and you look at the historical evidence, they all point to a resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we want to supplement some additional authorities to help us in our studying. Secular historians are primarily in agreement with the biblical accounts that Jesus was crucified, buried by a a Jewish Sanhedrin member named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin that actually had sentenced Jesus to death. Secular historians are in agreement that there was an empty tomb and that the disciples genuinely believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. One of these men was Josephus. Josephus was and is a a credible historian. He was Jewish, but was captured by the Romans. He began to be one of their historians during the Roman conquest throughout Israel in uh, the 70 AD period. This is a notable Roman governmental historian, not a 13-year-old boy with a blog. Okay? He was born a few years after Jesus had risen from the dead, and Josephus lived in the same time that eyewitnesses lived. He writes in his book, The Testimonium Flavium, uh, from the Antiquities, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him merely a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross. Those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold. These and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. And may I add, nor are we extinct To this day. Tom Arnold, or Thomas Arnold, was professor of history at rugby and Oxford. As Tom Arnold investigated the combined evidences of the empty tomb, all of the appearances of Jesus, the incredible change in the disciples' lives, the authenticity of the written records, not to mention the testimony of 2,000 years of Christian history... uh, Thomas Arnold, this professor, would write, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Again, this is a man who was a professor of history at Rugby University and Oxford University. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, I quoted him before, was royal professor of law at Harvard University. He was noted as one of the greatest legal minds that ever lived. He wrote a famous legal volume entitled A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, considered by many to be the greatest legal volume ever written. Dr. Simon Greenleaf believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was an absolute hoax. And he determined once and for all to put these Christians in their place and disprove the resurrection. After thoroughly examining all of the evidence, Dr. Greenleaf came to the exact opposite conclusion. So he wrote a new book entitled, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Court of Justice, in which he emphatically stated this, It was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. This man was a fair judge, a fair man, a fair inquirer who actually had a bias to the opposite opinion. And he would write that according to the jurisdiction of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported event in all of history. And not only that, Dr. Simon Greenleaf was so convinced by the overwhelming evidence 
that he committed his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. John Singleton Copley is known as having one of the greatest legal minds in British history. He was a solicitor general of the British government, attorney general of Great Britain, three times high chancellor of England, and elected as high steward of the University of Cambridge. He held in one lifetime the highest offices ever appointed a judge in Great Britain. And he wrote this, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as the evidence for the resurrection has never broken down yet. There's incredible evidence of the resurrection that has never broken down. Lord Darling, just a cute man, just looks so cuddly and just one of those kind grandpas. You could just cuddle up on his lap. And he has an awesome name, Lord Darling. Was the once Lord and Chief Justice of England. He wrote, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. They couldn't fail to see the overwhelming evidence that the resurrection is a fact. Dr. Frank Morrison is a lawyer who'd been brought up at the feet of such well-known atheists and skeptics, such as Oxford professor Matthew Arnold. He was brought up at the feet of a biologist and evolutionist, Thomas Huxley. Both of these men openly denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Dr. Morrison's testimony can be found in a book he wrote called Who Moved the Stone? He felt he owed it to himself and to others to write a book that would show the lie about Jesus and dispel the myth of the resurrection. When he did his investigating, looking at the evidence, he came to a completely different conclusion that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So he did end up writing a book, but it wasn't the book he had set out for. He ended up retitling it, Who Moved the Stone? Defending the Bodily Resurrection of Jesus. Another man, Pincus Leapy. And when you look for images of him, this is his like, this is his look, okay? We all have our looks, this is his. This man taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He declared himself convinced on the basis of the evidence that God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Pincus Lapide, is actually how you say it, uh, was one of the leading Jewish historians of his day. And even to stand in front of the Jews, he was able to say on the basis of evidence, the God of Israel indeed rose Jesus from the dead. As a church, Calvary Chapel of Crick County, we just finished a six-day fast. Many of us going six days, drinking only water, eating no food. Many just abstaining from various forms of entertainment, physical things, so that we could press in through prayer. And during this time, we read through the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. During this time, we read these 28 chapters of this book together, corporately, as a church. And we noticed that the resurrection of Jesus was paramount in the preaching of the early church. Some 14 times, we see the resurrection of Jesus being preached in separate occasions. And there are another four times where non-Christians and non-believers refer to Christians preaching about the resurrection. In one sermon of Paul's alone, he refers to the resurrection of Jesus four times. And so we're going to take a look at the book of Acts today in chapter 2. But before you get to 2, we're going to go to 1 and just read five verses. Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We find ourselves at a place where the gospel of Luke had left off. Jesus had just been crucified I should say he'd been betrayed, arrested, tried, wrongly tried, wrongly tried by another court, wrongly tried back by the first court. False witnesses came to testify against him. 
All of the judges found him to be uh, not guilty within the Roman courts, and yet to appease the Jewish people, they decided to have Jesus uh, 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 whipped and beaten, and then uh, finally traded for another uh, murderer uh, to the point where he would be crucified. Uh, he would lie on, uh, stay on that cross for six hours, be taken down from the cross, buried in a tomb, a rich man tomb, and then... Uh, uh, and then rise from the dead. We're celebrating that today, of course. Uh, and so here we are in Acts 1. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. And so just imagine being there, okay? Just imagine this, your leader, your friend was just, you, you'd betrayed him. You, you know, you knew and watched from a distance him being tried. You watched him be tortured, just brutally crucified and killed and murdered, uh, buried, and, and you've also witnessed him risen from the dead. Imagine, just let your emotions go there. Let your heart go there. Doesn't it jump a little bit inside? Doesn't it beat a little bit quicker? I know that mine does. It says here that Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, when, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or season which the fathers put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we have Jesus risen 40 days. Imagine just 40 days of hanging out with Jesus who had been risen from the dead. And during those 40 days, he's just showing himself that he's alive. He's proving it. Talking, walking, eating, walking through walls and appearing to people, you know, uh, appearing on shores and cooking breakfast for people. All of these incredible proofs. Imagine. We're going to talk more about those proofs in a minute, but Jesus told the disciples that you're supposed to go into Jerusalem right now and you're supposed to wait and I'm going to ascend to heaven, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit if you'll permit me. I'm going to ascend to heaven, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit is the language that's used. The third person of the Trinity will come upon you while you're waiting there in Jerusalem. And you are going to receive this dynamite power in your life. Yes, we know that 45 days ago or so, you guys were denying me in a garden that you never knew me. You were cussing at people, saying that you never knew me. You left me in the garden to be by myself. You were a bunch of chickens. But you go into Jerusalem and wait. And I will send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And he is going to pour himself out over you and come upon you in such a way, a dynamite way, that you will have power, no longer being chickens. You'll be powerful, and you will be witnesses. The Greek word for witness is marturo. You'll be able to be martyrs for me here in Jerusalem. And then you guys will go and be witnesses a little bit farther out in Judea and Samaria, and you're going to be witnesses farther out to the outermost parts of the world. And so go and wait. And then Jesus ascended into heaven, and they stood there gazing, you know. And my guess is he, like, probably disappeared, because uh, then two angels had to come and say, what, what are you guys doing? How long are you planning on standing here, you know, with your necks cocked up like this? Get to it! Because in the same way that he went up, he's coming back. It's time to get about business, so that he can come back. And so, they went back, and they began to pray. And some days later, as they were praying, there were 120 of them together in a room, in one accord, praying in unity. The sound of a rushing mighty wind came into this room. 
And there appeared fire on everyone's head. And they began to speak in tongues, a gift of the Holy Spirit. And as they were speaking in tongues, there were men from other nations out in the street that heard them speaking. And they said, wait a minute, aren't you people from Galilee? How are you guys speaking in our languages? And then it lists 19 other countries, 19 other nationalities that are there that begin hearing these Galilean people, fishermen and just regular Joes, speaking fluently in other languages, declaring the wonderful works of God. And Peter hears their questions and begins to use this as an opportunity. He stands up and he begins to preach to these people who are curious about this new language, uh, the language coming out of these individuals' mouths. So Peter is bold now, no longer a chicken, no longer denying Jesus, and he stands up and he preaches the gospel. And I just want to focus on a part of his sermon today. He's speaking to Jewish people who'd come into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Some 19 other nations who are curious, struck by curiosity at what has happened in this upper room. And I want to take you to Acts 222 today and just kind of take on the last half of his sermon as you're flipping there he says men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. He uses this as an opportunity to preach Jesus to the people. And you can see in the previous verses how he leads into that. But he wants them to know, you guys remember Jesus. I know you remember Jesus. This is no secret. You remember his miracles. You remember his words. You remember his wonders and signs. And it was God that did these things through him. To him, through him. Later on in the book of Acts, he tells Herod Agrippa, who is a Jewish king. Paul tells Herod Agrippa, Herod, you know these things to be true. These things weren't done in some dark corner. Everybody knows what Jesus was doing. Don't play the fool. Verse 23 of our text, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. In the Antonia Fortress, when I was in Israel three years ago, I was with my group and the tour guide asked, who killed Jesus? And many people say, the Jews killed Jesus. And many people say, the Romans killed Jesus. And as I was there in the very place that Jesus was whipped, I shouted out, I killed Jesus. It was me, Rory Rogers. It was you who killed Jesus. You see, even though the verse we just read said that God was the one that determined a purpose and had foreknowledge that this event was going to happen. It was sovereignly planned out before the beginning of time. Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. In the third chapter of Genesis, verse, chapter 3, verse 15, we have what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And it's there that it was planned out that Jesus would come and be bruised for the sins of mankind. And in his bruising, he would crush Satan. But who killed Jesus? Peter says, you, speaking to the Jews... You crucified him, and I declare to you in Prineville, you crucified him. I crucified him. There's a song that we sing as Christians. It was my sin that held him there. My sin were those nails. Rembrandt painted a picture of the crucifixion scene. And when he painted the picture, he painted his own hands with the nail and with the hammer. He knew that it was he that nailed Jesus to the cross. 
Mel Gibson, who produced Passion of the Christ, has a cameo where he has his hands in the scene and he's nailing Jim Caviezel's hands to the cross. He knew that it was his sin that nailed Jesus there. It's my sin and I hope that you catch the severity of it, that it's your sin as well. That's all bad news, isn't it? What do, you, what do you do to come back from that? Let's close. Let's, you guys want to go home and eat some Easter ham after hearing that? Is that what you want to do? Well, there's good news. It's in verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. You guys, on Friday, Jesus was crucified, crucified in an excruciating way. In fact, we get our word excruciate, excruciate out of the cross. Our word excruciating comes from this practice of torturous murder and execution. And on Good Friday, Jesus was crucified in that excruciating way. The medical toll and physical suffering on Jesus' body was staggering, brutal. He was stripped and whipped and ripped and bruised and beaten, bludgeoned and struck and spat upon, all before a forced march with a 120-pound piece of rugged wood upon his back. He marched some 700 yards to Mount Calvary, a.k.a. the place of the skull. He was nailed to the crossbar through the median nerve. Medical physicians say that this sends a shocking sensation up nerving sensation up to the head where the jaw locks in nervous pain. As he's nailed to the crossbar, mounted onto the vertical bar, bones become out of joint. He struggles for breath, losing blood while enduring the shame and the pain, but most of all, the separation from God, his Father. His body became a sponge there on the cross which absorbed the wrath of God that was to be upon me and to be upon you. His final breaths were spent comforting a criminal at his side, asking for God to not hold his murder against his captors. And he shouted out with a great victory, Tetelestai, it is finished. He was taken from the cross, prepared for burial and placed in a tomb but he would not stay there long. On Sunday, God would raise him up just as he promised, just as was foretold. And Jesus would be able to say, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and hell. It wasn't possible for him to be held there. Because he has the keys. He loosed the pains of death. Literally, the birth pains of death. Those are the pains that a mother has as she's preparing for the birth. And many of you here have birth pains for death. You know that death will come. You know one day you won't breathe anymore. You know one day things will go dark. You know you're not getting any younger. You know you will die. There has to be something that will happen afterward. Are you afraid? Honestly, I would be terrified if I didn't have the hope of heaven. One of my dear friends, Trish Stokes, was a trauma nurse in the ER her whole career. And she held people's hands as they died without hope in Jesus. And she says that the agony of their horror, knowing that they are going into some form of eternity, even if it's pitch black darkness. You guys, in Jesus, there's no more of those birth pains of the future death, but there's only hope and the joy of heaven with our creator who loves us and who gave himself for us and has spent 2,000 years preparing a place for us that we could enjoy him for all eternity. God released the bondage 
to pain that death had on us. We sang it twice today, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? We can slap death in the face now, people, because of Jesus. We can taunt death and mock death and say, you got nothing on us. There's no more pain because of Jesus. It was not possible for the creator of life to be held by death. And he was risen from the dead. Verse 25 of our text today says, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Just as we studied the beginning of our message today, there were prophecies that spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. Here, Jesus' great, 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 14 times great grandfather, King David of the tribe of Judah, writes of his great, great, great grandson that this Holy One, Jesus of Nazareth, will not see corruption. The air of a tomb will not have its effects on his body. It will not begin to decay. It will not be corrupt. He will not stay in Sheol or Hades or the dwelling place of the dead. And there's joy in that, the psalmist David writes. Peter goes on to say in verse 29 of his message, his sermon, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter preaching says, I want to talk with you about that king, King David, our king, one of our heroes, our national heroes. When he wrote that song that we sing, He wasn't writing about himself. He was writing about somebody else. Let's talk about this King David. How do we know he wasn't speaking about himself? Because his tomb is still with us to this day. And you can go there to Israel, into Jerusalem, into the city of David, in Bethlehem. And you can see the tomb of David. His bones are still there. His body saw corruption. Verse 30 says, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him about the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, verse 31, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. When David wrote Psalm 16, he wasn't speaking of himself, but this great grandson, Jesus of Nazareth. David knew he would have a tomb until the coming of the resurrection day, the resurrection of the just or the unjust. David's flesh saw corruption, going through the decay process that all men's bones and skin go through. But Jesus's did not. This Jesus is who David was writing of. David is writing of somebody else, not himself. We see a similar situation in Acts chapter 8 when, the, when Philip is told to go down to the desert and preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 8, 29 through 35, Philip is told by the Spirit of God, go and overtake this chariot. And so Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah in the chariot. And so Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. The place in the scriptures which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? 
Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And so just as we have Peter reading of David, a psalm written by David, David wasn't writing about himself, but some other man. Here the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53, and he says, is Isaiah writing about himself or another man? And Philip, knowing the Bible, is able to start with Isaiah 53 and go through the whole Bible and look at all these prophecies that we mentioned at the beginning of our sermon today, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one that all of these scriptures point to who would be killed and rise from the dead. After Jesus was risen from the dead, there were two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And they were sad. They were forlorn. And they were disciples of Jesus. And Jesus was uh, listening to their conversation. And they were grieved that, that their leader had died. They thought he was going to usher in the kingdom of Israel. How is it that, that, that he could have died and been buried? This was just grieving. And Jesus says, man, you guys, don't you know the power of God? So little of faith. Shouldn't, isn't it written that the Christ should have suffered and died and risen on the third day? And then he also sat down with them and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, spoke to them from the Bible all of the things concerning himself. Going through all of these prophecies with them and showing them that he was the Christ. And after this sermon is over and Jesus leaves, these two men say to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? All of these scriptures are talking of someone else. That someone else is Jesus. And Peter is preaching that right now to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Verse 32, he says, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses of these things. And even I myself, going to Israel three different times, I come feeling as if I still have the dust of Israel on myself, having felt the coarse side of the tomb and felt the cold air from inside the tomb. And sitting quietly in the garden of the, of the tomb. And, and looking out across and seeing the place where Jesus was crucified. Let me be your witness. Studying it myself, I can tell you, he is risen from the dead. There's incredible evidence that this tomb is the tomb that Jesus lay in. But he does not lay in it anymore. He is not here, the angel says. He is risen. He is risen. I told you earlier that one of the pillars of the resurrection were the eyewitness accounts. People saw Jesus alive. What does this mean to you? What could this mean? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I deliver to you first that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. People saw Jesus risen from the dead. Oh, well, that was some hallucination, the skeptics say. You know, they were on some kind of opiate. Henry Morris, Dr. Henry Morris, holding a PhD, writes, Such hallucinations, if this is what they were, are quite unique in human history and warrant the most careful psychological scrutiny. They were experienced by a large number of different individuals all seeing the same vision, but in different groups at different times, both indoors and outdoors, on a hilltop, along a roadway, by a lakeshore, and other places. Furthermore, they were not looking for Jesus at all. Several times they didn't recognize him at first. 
and at, la- and at least once eventually believed it was a ghost until he convinced them otherwise. He invited them to touch him and they recognized the wounds in his hand. They watched him eat with them. On one occasion, over 500 different people saw him at one time, most of whom were still living at the time when the evidence was being used. The vision theory is thus quite impossible and therefore the numerous appearances of Christ must be regarded as absolutely historical and genuine. This fact, combined with the evidence of the empty tomb, renders the resurrection as certain as any fact of history could possibly be. And so Peter says in verse 33 of Acts 2, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Forty days from today is Ascension Sunday, the day Jesus had his homecoming back to his throne of glory. But when he left, he didn't leave us as orphans, alone, without him in this world, but he sent us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Jesus said he will be with us and will be in us and will come upon us. He will testify of Jesus and give us power. Notice this picture here of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Jesus would refer to the third person of the Trinity in in reference to him as a picture of like living water powerfully coming upon people. Not so that they could be without control, but they, they could be meek, controlled strength for a purpose about his business, boldly and bravely testifying of him. Matthew chapter 3, verse 31, we have John the Baptist say, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is what Peter is referring to. Jesus ascending into heaven. You see, with a water baptism, an individual is baptized by a pastor or somebody else as repentance from their sin and in their old life and towards repentance for Jesus. It's a declaration of what's gone on inside their heart. But this baptism is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's Jesus who does the baptizing with the element of the person of the Holy Spirit. An individual is just saturated completely with the Holy Spirit so that they can be powerful in this world and live a life of testimony for Jesus Christ so that the world may know the saving ways of Jesus and that God could be glorified. I ask you today, first of all, have you received a water baptism where you've told the world that you've repented from your sins and turned towards Jesus Christ? And secondly, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Is there evidence of, in your life that God himself is upon you, moving you to live for him? Or does your life look exactly like everybody else's in the world around you? I want you to consider those two questions carefully as we wrap up our study today. Verse 34 says, For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus would use this same passage in Matthew twenty two forty one to trick the Pharisees and not to trick them, but to prove to them that he was the Lord. David would call his great, 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 great grandson Lord. Also in the scriptures, we see God the Father calling God the Son God. How can God the Father call God the Son God? Because God the Son is God. And God the Holy Spirit is God. It's the mystery of the Trinity or the triunity or the three in one. Three persons in one Godhead. He has been... Verse 36. Made by God, Lord and Christ. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
both Christ and Kyrios in the Greek. God the Father has exalted his son and declared him to be this. After a victorious life where he was sinless, after a sacrificial death where he died for all of you and all of me, after a powerful resurrection and proclamation of his resurrection and a glorious ascension and homecoming back into the heavens, God the Father has said, Jesus is Lord and Christ. And verse 37 says, And when the Jews heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what should we do? All of this preaching of what they've done to Jesus, crucifying the Lord, the Messiah. It's evident he's risen from the dead. We killed God. They were cut to the heart. They were pierced inside in their inner man. They were moved. Saying, what do we do? You're talking right to me. Zechariah says that one day all of Israel will understand this and they will look on Jesus whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. How about you today? Where is your heart after hearing that you killed Jesus? That your sin nailed him there? But that he didn't stay dead, but he's resurrected and will one day judge the world. He will judge the just and he will judge the unjust. I hope your heart will be cut like these. I hope that you'll say, Rory, what should I do? When John the Baptist was preaching, the people said to him, what shall we do then? The tax collectors and sinners heard him and said, what should we do then? And the soldiers heard him and said, what should we do then? And I hope you're here today and you will be humble enough and reasonable enough to understand, as I humbly say, I killed Jesus with my sin, but he's resurrected and has been called Lord and Christ and every knee should bow and declare him to be God and Savior of the world. Humble yourself. Don't let pride send you to hell. Let the Spirit of God cut you to the heart. And say, Rory, tell me what to do. I tell you what Peter told them. In verse 38, Peter said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Or the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent today. Repent means to change your mind. When you walked in these doors, your mind was this way about Jesus. Just a good man. Just a prophet. Just a religious figure. Just one religion out of a buffet of many other religions to choose from. But today, Peter preaches to you and I preach to you that he is not one. He is the only one. He is Lord and he is Christ. And everyone will bow their knee before him one day. And declare him to be so. You need to change your mind about him right now. And if you find yourself saying, how can I do that? You can ask like a little kid, God changed my mind right now. God changed my mind about you. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your false belief and believe on him. And after you've done that, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We have an opportunity for you today to be baptized. Maybe you're a Christian here and you've never been baptized before. You need to be baptized. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. We're saved by the grace of God apart from works. But if you are a Christian, you need to be baptized. That is a work that will accompany your salvation. It is like a tree popping apples. Apple trees pop apples. Christians get baptized. And if you are a Christian that hasn't been baptized, I believe there is reason to call into question, have you really obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? We see here, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. We see in Acts 22, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 
Today, the Lord God is calling on you here to repent of your sins, to change your mind about God, and to come to the waters and be baptized. Oh, but then I'll look like a dork and I'll come up and I'll like have to get all wet and then I'll be like wet for the next 10 minutes till I go home and put on dry clothes. You guys, Jesus Christ was stripped naked and bludgeoned to death with nails and hung on a cross for six hours naked in front of people. He's calling you to be baptized. Would you be baptized today in obedience to the scriptures? There's a bit of animosity as I say that. I don't want to come off as a jerk. But for years, I'm the one that was there going, nope. Nope, it doesn't make sense to me. No, no, people are going to look at me. Nope, you know what? That is pride. That's saying, I know better than Jesus. And so I'm really talking to myself. And so forgive any, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm with Peter here. I want you to be saved. I want you to be forgiven for killing Jesus. But to do that, you've got to repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Call on the name of the Lord. And verse 3 says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that just as Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him that day, that today when you would be baptized, the Holy Spirit would come upon you. Now, I'm not saying that's a blanket statement, that that's the order of things, because in the book of Acts, we see it happens all sorts of different ways. But I believe that the Lord would speak to us today. If you would obey him and repent of your sins and come here, you will be baptized with water, but Jesus will also baptize you with the Holy Spirit today. And you will receive the power that these men in the book of Acts had to hazard their lives for Jesus and to live for him because people, you only have one life to live and it will soon be over. And only what you've done for Jesus will hold strong. Only what you've done for him will hold strong. You might say, no, that's not for me. That whole Bible thing, that's ancient Bible days stuff. Surely baptism isn't necessary and surely the spirit of God won't be poured out on me today if I'm baptized. It's 2015, for goodness sakes, Rory, get with the times. Peter knew you were gonna say that. And so he says in Acts chapter two, this promise of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. For you to believe that there are other ways to heaven or that there are many ways, that is a perverse, crooked generation thinking. And today's a day to repent of that. For you to believe that you don't need Jesus and you can make it on your own is a wicked and perverse ideology. For you to think that you don't need to turn from your sins, but you can continue living with that other guy or that other girl, continue on in adultery, sexual immorality, paganism, lifting up yourself against God, saying that you know better than him, that is crookedness, that is perversity. And I would preach to you today, be saved from that. Don't let that go on. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of hope. Today is the day we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead and he's called the first fruits. That means that he's the first one of us who's going to rise from the dead. Won't you be numbered with Jesus Christ today? Let's have the worship team come on up as we read our last verse from the book of Acts. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. My prayer today is that you would gladly receive this word. And that you would gladly repent of your sins. And that you would gladly come forward and be baptized. And tell this world that you've been forgiven. Baptism is an external display of what has happened in your heart. It's telling the world that just as Jesus Christ was di has died on the cross, by faith today, you too are dying and have died with him. You died with him and were buried. And that's that part in the baptism where you go under the water being buried. But just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, so you too will rise up to newness of life. Romans chapter six says, therefore we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, 
even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with him, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's put our things aside and bow our head. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 say that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Today, if you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, He is calling you to salvation and this life of a Christian. He's calling you to repentance now. He's calling you to lay down your life, if you will, to die with him. But don't worry, it doesn't just end in dying with him. You too will be raised to newness of life. And the Bible says that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead will be upon you. During these final songs, we're going to open up the baptismal and just be here for you. Maybe you came in those doors today and you were crooked and perverse in your thinking. What you thought was against what the Bible says. And today you would repent of your logic that goes against Jesus Christ. You would come today to the waters and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins today. The language means since you have forgiveness of sins. Since Jesus has forgiven your sins today, come be baptized. The enemy, Satan, wants to bring you to hell. He doesn't want you to stand for Jesus. He doesn't want you to proclaim your faith. He wants you to sit there and to ponder of the humiliation of going forward in front of a group. He wants you to think about getting wet and standing there sopping. and That's what Satan wants. But Jesus would lovingly beckon you to trust him. That this is one of the first things you will do as a Christian in the rest of your life, full of trusting Jesus and obeying him. Won't you come and obey him in the most simple of callings? Come to the waters today. Be baptized as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's you, come forward as myself and Kevin will baptize. We have towels here to dry you off. We want to welcome you as friends. We want to welcome you as brothers. And we want to say, as the Ethiopian eunuch said, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And I would say, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Come forward now as you hear God call your life.